Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to season two of the Movie Brewer podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Scott Willis, and this is the podcast where we talk not just about movies, but about the stories behind actually getting them made. So I know I went quiet there for a little while, and hey, um, you know, 2020 for a lot of people was rough. It, it done us all a little dirty, and uh, I was no exception. I had a hard time kind of following through with this creative outlet when um, there was so much complication in the world. I guess I'll leave it at that. But now I'm back, and we've got more beer, and we've got more movie excitement, and... And honestly, I think movies, or you know, at least this podcast, should be more of an escape from reality um, than a mirror of it. And while I don't want to too directly address any of the insanity that was 2020, I couldn't help but make, I guess what I'd call a small nod of the head with my first pick of 2021. So, Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam has put out some incredibly fantastical films. Uh, throughout his career, works like Brazil, The Fisher King, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. These films have defined a unique and talented filmmaker, nearly as much as the extreme complications that seem to follow him on every project he undertakes. And 12 Monkeys, our film for today, is no exception. But... Before we get into it, let's crack a beer. Spoilers ahead. Welcome back. This is the Movie Brewer Podcast. So my beer for today is Golden Monkey from Victory Brewing, and I suppose you'd be hard-pressed to call Victory Brewing a craft brewery. Uh, they've been around for quite a while now, and they're rather large, but hey, this is my podcast. I'm going to do what I want to do. Victory Brewing was founded in 1996 in Downington, Pennsylvania. Childhood friends Bill Kovaleski and Ron Barchette uh, founded the brewery, as so many breweries are, uh, over a shared love of homebrewing, a love that turned into a friendly competition as they each moved further and further into the industry uh, until they both suddenly found themselves as legitimate, accomplished brewers. Golden Monkey, the beer I have in front of me, is a Belgian triple ale. Yes, triple. Of course, it wouldn't really be a premiere of season two if I didn't have a hilariously high ABV beer to drink and sort of, I guess, mess with my head as I continue to talk about these movies. But uh, Golden Monkey starts with a classic Pills malt. That's the baseline. It's made with Tetanang hops. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Tetanang. But the real thing I'm told that shines in this beer is the yeast. It's a Belgian yeast that has been iterating at Victory Brewing for years and years and years. It has a long history of sort of growing with the company, I'd say. Uh, and I'm told that that's what you really taste when you drink a Golden Monkey. I'm told to look for hints of banana, which is, you know, appropriate. Bubblegum, which I don't know how I feel about. Clove, 
sure, and orange. So yay for citrus, I guess. Um, I'm not really sure how all of that comes from a yeast, but uh, I'm going to pop this open and see how it goes. All right. So the first thing I see with this is that it has a fair amount of carbonation, not a whole lot of bubble, but you know, there's something there. It has a nice light crisp color, um, not too bright, not too dark, kind of just, you know, in the middle about, I'd say maybe a half inch of head, not a lot considering how much carbonation is going on, uh, in the, in the body itself, but in terms of aroma, not a lot in terms of aroma. There's definitely, I feel like I, I, I smell the fruit or the citrus in there. Um, it's very light, um, but, and I feel like I say this on so many of these episodes, but it kind of just smells like a beer. But let's see how it tastes. All right. Well, that's, that's actually pretty complex. I'm, I, I like that. From what I can tell, there's definitely a tail end of uh, a hard hit of alcohol. You can definitely taste that it's a 9.5% ABV. Beyond that, I would say I think I taste the bubble gum the most, which is weird. There's definitely some citrus in there. I think the banana and the bubble gum are kind of side by side. It, it really, as I'm taking sips here, it, it really plays back and forth. Um, but overall, yeah, really complex, really nice. And, um, you know, I, 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 I enjoy this. As I said, it's a, a 9.5 ABV. I was going to attempt to do, drink 12 of these over the course of this podcast. Um, you know, 12 monkeys, 12 golden monkeys. But if I drink 12 9.5 triple ales in the next 20 minutes, I'm going to fall on my ass. So we're not going to do that. We're going to drink one, maybe two. And yeah, that's ugh, okay. Yeah, these transitions are not going to be any better in this second season. So moving on to the movie of the day, 12 Monkeys, directed by Terry Gilliam. As I always do, I'm going to start off with a brief synopsis of this, although with this film, it's hard to summarize anything briefly, but I'm going to try my best. Here we go. In the year 2035, most of humanity has been wiped out by a deadly virus. Those surviving members of humanity have escaped underground and searched for a cure through the annals of history. With the help of a newly developed form of time travel, scientists send James Cole, a prisoner, back in time to 1996 to try and find what they believe to be the source of the virus, the army of the 12 monkeys. But Cole is sent back too far and ends up committed to a mental institution where he crosses paths with Dr. Catherine Rowley, a psychiatrist who believes he is delusional, and Jeffrey Goines, a fellow patient. After returning to 2035, Cole is again sent back, this time to the correct year, 1996, where he kidnaps the same Dr. Rowley 
in an effort to stop the army of the 12 monkeys before the virus is released and humanity is lost. So yeah, even that brief synopsis doesn't even begin to touch on all the different aspects of this film. There's a lot going on and one could never adequately summarize it in such a short time. But let's talk about its history. The story of 12 Monkeys actually starts with a French film called La Jetée. It was a film made by a man named Chris Marker in 1962, and it is told entirely through still images. There is no motion at all. It's a compilation of stills. It's definitely worth watching. It's actually really intriguing in terms of its story. I will add a link in the show notes to be sure. Um, La Jete deals with a lot of the same themes. A time traveler from the future who witnesses his own death. Uh, spoilers. There are a lot of parts that La Jete and 12 Monkeys share. But much of the story of 12 Monkeys is actually an evolution of... La Jete. It's, a, it's a jumping off point. Originally, it was executive producer Robert Kosberg who convinced Universal to option the rice to La Jete. Universal was originally reluctant. They didn't see a lot of promise in the script, but they originally hired David and Janet Peoples to pen the screenplay. David Peoples, at this point, is an established force in Hollywood. He made a name for himself, first and foremost, as the screenwriter for Blade Runner, one of the greatest science fiction movies of all time. That was also followed up by titles like Richard Donard's Lady Hawk and Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. This guy was a hell of a screenwriter. Terry Gilliam was brought on board by a man named Charles Roving, Chuck, uh, who ended up being a major producer on the film. He was the first to sort of pair Gilliam's style with the concepts and feel of the film. Uh, there's a lot of similarities between 12 Monkeys and Brazil, which we'll talk about in a little bit. The timing was also convenient. Gilliam had just had his film adaptation of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens completely fall apart, which, if you know anything about Terry Gilliam, seems to be an ongoing theme... Yeah. Usually, Gilliam likes to work with his own scripts, but he was very intrigued by the fractured nature of 12 Monkeys and decided that it could be something that he could really, like, bring to life in his own style. He had never seen La Jetée. He saw the script for the homage that it was, but considered it a springboard more than an actual framework. To quote Gilliam, it seemed like a good diving board, but a dive is not a diving board. So, we had a good script in place. We had Terry Gilliam locked in. But, as so often happens, Universal, uh, despite optioning the script, was still reluctant to approve any kind of massive budget for the production. Even with multiple stars attached, we'll touch on that in a minute. Um, their reluctance was based, in part, on the extreme budget issues that they had just encountered with another one of their films. And if you are at all a fan of the show, you may know what I'm talking about. Over-budget films from 1995 would, of course, lead you to Waterworld by Kevin Costner. If you don't know the chaos that was that film production, check out season one. Uh, it was a lot. 
Yeah. So Universal kind of reluctant to jump on board. And at that same time, you also had Terry Gilliam demanding Final Cut for the film. Now, Final Cut, for those who don't know, means that the director of the film has the absolute last say in how the film is structured, how the edit comes together. There's no one who can step in and say, hey, I think this should be like that with any authority. Terry Gilliam, on his previous film, Brazil, had had massive issues with the studio stepping in and saying, this is how we're going to do the movie. How you want to do it doesn't matter. This is what's going to make money. Here we go. That can be very, very brutal for a director. And Gilliam wasn't about to allow that to happen again. So Gilliam had to find a way to get the studio on board. And most of that came around the cast. Now, despite the complication with Brazil, Gilliam had had a couple of films after that that kind of put him in a, a position of power in the Hollywood studio system. The Adventures of Baron Mauthausen and The Fisher King had been successful enough to draw talent to Gilliam for his projects, which is good because Universal had wanted big names for the role of Cole. To offset the risk of giving Gilliam final cut and to promise a level of box office performance. Universal had pushed names like Tom Cruise and Nick Cage, which Terry Gilliam rejected out of hand. Uh, he accepted Bruce Willis, who was most notably known for movies like Die Hard and things like that. Not really for dramatic roles, more for action roles. He accepted Willis for the role after talking to him and realizing that despite his filmography, he actually was an intelligent and capable actor and seemed to have a grasp uh, on what they were trying to do. And casting Bruce Willis as Cole gave the film a level of credibility. Willis wanted to work with Gilliam, and the two had worked hard to make sure that this wasn't a Bruce Willis film. They both had that mentality of, this is not going to be a studio system production. This is going to be something else. And it was beneficial for both. It gave Gilliam the credibility, and it gave Willis a chance to showcase some more emotional range than he had been in his previous films. When it comes to the rest of the cast, you had Madeline Stowe, who plays Dr. Riley. One of the few members of the cast that Gilliam wanted from the start, uh, he believed that she struck that perfect chord between ethereal beauty and a sharp intelligence. You also got Brad Pitt, who was cast and locked in several months before the production started. And in those months, in, in fact, a couple weeks before the production actually started, Interview with a Vampire and Legends of the Fall both came out and rocketed Brad Pitt to one of the hottest actors in Hollywood. Something that Terry Gilliam hadn't really expected, but that newfound fame didn't take away from Pitt's commitment to the role. Uh, before filming began, he spent weeks and weeks at Temple University's hospital studying the psychiatric patients and preparing for the role and making sure that his performance was exactly where it should be for that kind of character. Beyond that, we also get Christopher Plummer, who would go on to do multiple other films with, with Terry Gilliam. David Morris, who plays the unknown villain, I guess I'd say. You also get Matt Ross, uh, who listeners may know as Silicon Valley's Gavin Belson in another one of his small-time roles before he really had his breakout performance uh, on that show. 
Uh, and then you also get Christopher Maloney uh, in a in a very small role for him uh, as a as a cop, but I guess a precursor of his uh, role in Law and Order. And then at last, there's Joseph Melito, uh, who plays young Cole. Terry Gilliam had a lot of complications with this this casting. Um, Joseph was cast for his beautiful eyes. The the film starts and ends with those eyes, but unfortunately for him, he ended um, he ended up not being a very good actor and frustrated Terry Gilliam to no end. He thought he had great eyes for the role, but not the range to actually bring it home. I'll say. But yeah, so with Willis and Pitt involved, Universal was willing to to take the risk and put the money up for the film. Uh, and production started on February 5th, 1995. Uh, they shot in Philadelphia and Baltimore. For a majority of the film, the budget didn't allow for any kind of sound stages or anything like that. So sets were built in found locations and abandoned buildings. A lot of the sets that take place in the future are built out of abandoned buildings in Philadelphia. And there were a lot of budget concerns around how large those sets could be and what they could really do. And the production itself was slow and painstaking, mostly due to Terry Gilliam's insane perfectionism. Uh, Terry Gilliam, if if you've seen any of his films, he he has an intense desire to follow exactly what he has in his mind on 12 monkeys specifically there was what became known as the hamster factor the hamster factor comes from a scene in the film wherein bruce willis is giving himself an injection of some sort once he returns to the future and in that shot single shot there is a hamster running on a wheel. This shot lasts for maybe four seconds. It's an establishing shot. It doesn't add a whole lot to the storyline. But that damn hamster just wouldn't run on its wheel. And Terry Gilliam was more than willing to spend an entire day making sure that that hamster ran in that shot. And this is problematic when you're dealing with a major motion picture. There are certain things that are worthwhile in in a film. Uh, but there are certain things that you say, hey, like that's not going to happen. We're going to move on. We don't have time to chase this one minute detail. But Terry Gilliam, in his Terry Gilliamness, chases these details to the edge of the earth. So there are a lot of small portions of this film that don't add a lot to it, but are there because Gilliam was just not willing to compromise. But luckily that perfectionism also carried through with the budget and the production schedule. So though there were these endless complications and endless delays, uh, they continually stayed on budget and for the most part, on schedule. At the wrap of the film, they were only a week behind. And that's pretty impressive. There are a lot of films that wrap with several additional weeks. 
The shoot concluded with the last scene of the film. As I had mentioned earlier, the film is bookended with the shot of uh, young Cole's eyes. And this is the shot as young Cole watches himself be killed. Hashtag spoilers. And that was what Gilliam wanted. He was like, this is how it's going to be. This is how I believe this should end. And that was where he was. But his producers had other plans. Uh, There was a big, big push from the producers in the studio to say, hey, this has to have some kind of concluding scene. The producers wanted a shot on the plane of the scientists intercepting David Morris, who is going to go release the the pathogen into the world, giving it kind of a a little more of that Hollywood happy ending. um, If you can call it happy, I don't know. And then a final scene in the airport parking lot of young Cole sort of continuing on with his life. Gilliam thought this was garbage. He he pushed over and over and over again to say, I don't want that. I think we should just end on the eyes. This is crap. After continual, continual pressure, Gilliam came up with the most expensive final shot that he could think of. Okay, if you're going to make me do this scene out in the airport parking lot, I'm going to make it so expensive that you go, well, we're not doing that. We'll just cut it. It's fine. This was his mentality. So he came up with this shot that's basically a crane on top of a crane, and it pans down almost, I want to say like 50, 60, 70 feet down to young Cole's eyes again. And this shot was never intended to be in the film. But when... Gilliam got into the edit room and saw it. He was like, yeah, hey, you know, that's 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 not too bad. That's pretty cool. And it ends up in the film. Once they got into the editing room, there was a lot of back and forth with how explicit to make the time travel. There were talks of actually putting title cards of, oh, hey, this is 1990. Oh, hey, this is 1996. Oh, hey, this is 1917. It's, it's a tough thing with any film with time travel. And as they shot, they were actually cutting as well. Uh, Editor Mick Audsley was in close contact with Gilliam, and uh, there was a lot of back and forth about how explicit to make the time travel. And it's interesting to note that this film was actually cut on film. Uh, In 1995, when this was being edited, a lot of films had made the transition to a digital editing system, be it Avid or what have you. But Gilliam and his editor insisted that it be cut on film, and so it was. Before its premiere, there was a lot of talk about recutting the film because test audiences seemed somewhat confused by the overall timeline, but Gilliam wanted to keep it ambiguous. Uh, The overall test screenings were still positive, so he decided to, you know, keep it how it was, flexing his power of final cut. Yes, there were things that could be improved, but if the overall response is positive then yeah we're gonna we're gonna roll with it so it was given a very limited release on december 29th 1995 uh with just three theaters it made one hundred eighty-four thousand dollars, which is pretty good for three you know you're talking the end of the year just hey this is gonna show up and and see what it does uh, a week later on january 5th it was given its wide release to which it opened number one at $13.8 million, unseating the infamous Toy Story. 
Overall, over the course of its run, it grossed $57 million domestic and $29.8 million international, which is pretty good. You know, you got a total of $87 million or so there, um, which is much higher than the $29 million budget that it was originally given. You know, $29 million being the, the max that Universal was prepared to spend on a Terry and Gilliam film. And it was released to really positive reviews. Uh, currently, it stands at 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. And Gilliam's initial thoughts that it might be a bit ambiguous seem to be right on the money. A lot of a lot of critics said, hey, I don't really know what's going on here, but it's engaging and I and I dig it. And and that's kind of where I land on this film too. You know, there's a lot going on here. There's a big debate about whether or not Cole is actually from the future or if all of it is just a massive delusion. And the ambiguity of that really lends itself to being a, a much more uh, engaging film. And I don't know. It's one of those, I, I don't know that I really have a Terry Gilliam film that I don't like, but this one kind of... It's a nice hybrid between a really artsy European film and Hollywood film. There's a good mix of both, and that to me makes it very appealing. So yeah, that's what that's what I got in terms of the production. Uh, I'm going to bring us back down to the quick facts, starting with the fact that Bruce Willis had never been killed in a film before Twelve Monkeys. Uh, I mean, he was the quintessential action hero. About halfway through the film, Terry Gilliam was involved in a near-fatal horseback riding accident uh, that put him on his ass for a few days. You know, there's there's images of him with a a massive shiner and a uh, just overall beat-down look that, um, hey man, he still showed up and directed this film. Throughout the film live monkeys are seen pretty substantially. It's believed that there are 12 actual monkeys in the film. I only counted 10, but I might not be so good at counting monkeys. It's a weird comment. Uh, It was nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Supporting Actor for Brown Pitt. Uh, He ended up losing to Kevin Spacey for The Usual Suspects and Best Costume Design for Julie Weiss. Uh, It was the 22nd highest grossing film of 1996. Number one, as I have said before in this podcast, going to Independence Day. So yeah, that's what I got. I'm going to come back to my golden monkey here. This is a very different kind of monkey than uh, I I would say the 12 in the film are. Um, it's very nice. The, the alcohol end of it is getting a little more substantial as it warms up. But at the same time, I think the, the fruitiness of it is increasing as well. So, so it's maintaining a, a nice balance. It's interesting. Victory Brewing actually has a few different beers that are are monkey based, monkey based, and uh, they say that these monkeys are here to remind us that quality does not have to be too serious. And I think that's something that um, we could all really take to heart right now. Monkeys aren't serious. I guess that's not a huge lesson to to take away from this. Uh, episode, but 
We're going to go with it. Hey. Uh, and with that insane wrap-up, we're going to bring it home for the first episode of Season 2 of the Movie Brewer Podcast. Uh, a quick note, in all likelihood, I'll be doing these episodes monthly from here on out. Um, but hopefully that means I can get a little more in-depth with some of the Stranger Productions out there. As always, I hope you'll hit the like or subscribe button. Be sure to check me out on social media. I am on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Movie Brewer. You can check out my movie reviews on Letterboxd, my beer reviews on Beer Advocate. And I hope you'll tune in next episode when I bring things right up to this year. There's a fascinating story of a production actually made amongst all of the chaos that is 2020. But we'll get into that next time. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrew Scott Willis. And this has been the Movie Brewer Podcast. Thank you.